This is part two of The Horse and the Rider. If you haven't heard part one yet, go back and listen to that first. careened into his apartment and desperately busied himself. He stuffed underwear and shirts into an overnight bag, then dashed to the kitchen. He cleaned frantically. He emptied his fruit bowl into the trash disposal and hit the button to grind it all away. A mango stone caught. He sobbed as he jabbed at it with a wooden spoon handle. He raced back to the bedroom and stuffed more clothes into bags. On the counter his mobile phone rang and he yelped in terror. He crept towards it and felt his stomach sink away into a chasm as the screen displayed no caller ID. The cops! cops, The cops! Fuck! What could he do? He slumped against the stone countertop and sank to the ground. He couldn't let them get to him. He'd done nothing wrong. He was sure of that. It was a tragic accident that could have befallen anyone. Yet it had befallen him. But how could you explain that to an audience that expected him to calmly and dispassionately explain crimes to them? confident in the knowledge that he was not a crook himself. You couldn't. It was career suicide for a newsreader. He crawled miserably to his couch and lay prone for a while. After ten minutes, he reached sulkily over the armrest and grabbed his acoustic guitar by the neck. He hung his head melodramatically and began picking the opening chords to Layla by Eric Clapton, the unplugged version. Janka, janka, janka. He went. He felt the rhythm. Layla, he strummed. Janka, janka, jank. And settled into a comfortable stupor. In the looping chords and muttered vocal melody lay a certain routine. A hypnotising retreat from Peter Quinnell Live's earthly worries. The world blurred out of focus. Layla, got me on my knees, Layla. Got me on my knees, Layla. They were the only words he knew, so he repeated them again and again. Got me on my knees, Layla. Then, like a gunshot, the world exploded back into his senses again. The late news theme on the TV. News anchor Peter Quinnell Live is a person of interest in the violent death of an elderly Greek man. Reading tonight was Mike Hotter, a square-chinned goof with a perpetually surprised expression on his face. He had straight, springy hair that leapt up from his forehead and fed the impression he gave of being shocked and slightly uncomfortable at the stories he was compelled to read out. With a slight and almost imperceptible anxiety that you'd only notice if you knew him, Mike said, Five News Management has declined to comment. Five News Management almost certainly meant news director Judith Senyol, and if Judith Senyol's attitude was one of equanimity and dispassion, then perhaps things weren't as bad as they could get. In fact, Judith Senyol had shrieked with glee when she heard the news and immediately called Jason Strasbourg to offer him Peter Quinnell Live's slot. She hated Peter Quinnell Live, but then she hated everybody she knew. The only people she liked were those she saw occasionally, at dinners or award ceremonies or after parties. She hunted immediately for the weakness that would allow her to despise a person, and when she found it, she despised them. 
The only reason she hadn't gone on air to immediately disown Peter and announce his suspension from the Five News roster was because her mouth was blue and filled with raw, flayed flesh. Judith was a strong and angry woman with dark hair and a skin full of tensed up muscle. She led the news team with an iron fist which she wielded in ways both bold and subtle, at times a bludgeon, at times sheathed within a velvet glove, and others simply slipped beneath the surface of the water to stir the sand and mud into a fug of uncertainty to be taxed and exploited. Every conversation with her was underwritten with dark hints of potential retribution. She instilled in her staff a combination of fear and a bewilderment that someone with so little demonstrated ability or insight could loom quite so large. Mostly, the palpable fear she inspired meant it was enough to just be the boss, to give orders, drink coffee, sign paperwork, go to lunch, make a decision. Boss stuff was easy or difficult, depending on how much you thought about it, and Judith had discovered you didn't always need to think a lot about it. Sometimes it was enough to just relax one's elegant fingers and withdraw one's hands from the wheel. Sometimes it was better. Instinct kicked in. But there were other situations that called for more. An X factor. A certain maverick spirit of ingenuity. Old-fashioned pizzazz. Call it whatever you like, Judith was confident that it was her defining quality. It was why she'd spontaneously usurped the tour guide showing around the chairman and his daughter and the daughter's journalism class for a special VIP tour of the newsroom. Leave us alone, she'd snapped at the guide in a display of dominance she imagined the chairman would find impressive. She stepped them briskly through the building, sliding into studios and tapping on windows that would have otherwise remained closed and untapped upon with brutish efficiency until the deputy editor slid up behind her and whispered in her ear that the police had a bulletin out for Peter Quinnell live. She panicked. The chairman certainly didn't know, but once he found out he would expect Judith to have answers, and Judith didn't have any answers. There was nothing less impressive than someone who didn't have answers. That's another thing, she snapped at the group. Always have answers. She moved them on, but on every floor and every studio and green room, televisions blared. The story wasn't on air yet, but the risk was too high. She needed to be somewhere where the news was unable to betray her. She hurried the tour group into a fire escape and down onto the footpath outside, where, after drilling them on the importance of hitting the pavement to do real investigative work, she'd been forced to get on her hands and knees and drink from a pool of thick blue cold pack filler on the ground. She didn't know it was cold pack filler. Look, she'd snapped gesturing at the pool in a moment of wild abandon. Look at this. What do you notice? The students had looked at her blankly. The parameters of the question were unclear. These little pops. She mined a pop with her fingers. These pops of colour are what make stories come alive, she'd elaborated. It was clear they still didn't understand. You're journalists, she snapped, clapping her hands as she said the words. What do journalists do? We... We commit to understanding, a voice at the back purred. Judith searched around the group for the source of the voice, practically foaming with fury at having her thought truncated, and realised with irritation it was the chairman. Sure, she snapped, we commit, but we also paint a picture. We dig around in the entrails. We allow a glimpse of what might be by stating what is, Judith said, gesturing at the pool of chemicals that had burst out of the violently handled cold pack just a half hour earlier, when, in a moment of intense rage, sub-editor Perial Jeers had taken it in his fist and hurled it out the window. Who knows what this is? Perial Jeers had taken the cold pack from the freezer in the staff break room after Tara, the hot intern, had swung open a cupboard door searching for mugs to steal as Perry rounded a corner, cracking him neatly on the convex swell of his bulbous head. He'd held it to his skull to stop the swelling until Tara had giggled that he looked very dashing in his new hat. 
Perry hated to be flirted with, and he hated hats. He blushingly told her that he was using it to treat an injury, and that head injuries could lead to concussion and even clotting, and that it happened more than you might think. Well, it looks good on you, Tara winked. The whole thing gave Perry half an erection, which he also hated. As soon as she left the room, he did a little dance of rage and aimed the pack, which had been the permanent occupant of the Five News breakroom freezer since 1993, at the open window. None of the students knew what the cold pack filler was. They had neither a nuanced knowledge of chemicals nor an awareness of the context that had caused the pool of blue gel to come to rest in the uneven guttering of the sidewalk outside the Five News building. They'd been promised a brief tour of the offices and a quick question and answer session with the editor. They didn't want to say anything wrong because they were all hoping to have a job interview when they graduated. Who knows what this is? Judith asked again when no one responded to her. She didn't really want a response. She didn't know what kind of response there was to be given because she didn't know what the pool was made of and she wasn't sure exactly where the thrust of her rhetoric had led her. But she asked it again and this time a student raised his hand. Yes? She asked. It's James, the student told her. And what is this? She demanded. Blueberry, he said, trailing off. Blueberry? Blueberry what? Judith asked, hoping desperately for something non-edible, like paint or plastic. Blueberry sauce? The student told her reluctantly. She stared at the pool of goop. It was almost supernaturally blue, like someone had stolen a cup of ocean water from a Mediterranean resort brochure and dumped it on the midtown sidewalk. Less sure than ever, she croaked. And what do we do with blueberry sauce? We commit to understanding, the student mumbled. With a great shudder, Judith clambered down onto her hands and knees and sipped at the pool of gel. A bitter, acrid flavour washed over her palate. A piercing chemical flavour seemed to bore into the roof of her mouth and she shuddered, then swallowed. A great heat spread to the back of her throat, into her nose and ears and down her esophagus to her stomach as the fluid made its way through her body. She stifled the urge to vomit. She covered her mouth and mumbled, Blueberry sauce. The tour was over. Judith waved an arm at the students who looked at each other and scattered. She remained upright and trembling until the last one had disappeared from sight, then staggered inside to the atrium and the lift bank, lurching like a wounded deer in a nature documentary whose abdomen has already been lion slit and whose guts have begun to sag to greet the yellowing savannah grass. On shaking legs, she propelled herself through the corridors of Five News and into her office. The pain in her mouth was incredible, a chemical sear that combined with a piercing acrid bitterness for an almost transcendental sensation. Her palate burned from the freezer pack gel and her face burned with fury at the calamity of misadventure that had just befallen her. How could this have happened? More specifically, how could it have happened to her? The sequence of events that had led to the ferocious chemical onslaught in her mouth was clear and simple, but she was unable to reconcile her intelligence and decision-making capability with the hideous pain she felt. It was simply impossible that something this preventably awful could have been brought on by her own actions, and so the only remaining possibility was that someone else had done this to her. Her gut told her this. All other possibilities had been eliminated. With one arm, she swept the paper and stationery from her desk and slumped over it. She scrabbled frantically for water and found only a bottle of alcohol gel hand sanitizer. She mashed a glistening palm onto the top of the pump bottle and greedily shoveled a handful of the goop into her mouth. She closed her eyes and waited for the alcohol to sanitize the taste from her mouth. But the hand sanitizer was a poor choice. Judith's eyes watered as the burning resumed, invigorated. 
She felt a warm metallic taste in her mouth and spat a big gob into the waste paper basket. It was blood, made thick and gelatinous from spit and melting skin. She cast her eyes around the room for another liquid to wash the chemicals out of her mouth, but there was nothing except for a small fire extinguisher cable tied to the wall by her filing cabinet. Judith eyed the door despairingly. She believed very strongly that leaders should show their subordinates absolutely no weakness of any kind, and she was loath to venture out into the open plan office where she could be seen by the reporters at large. But her mouth was filling with blood again, and her head had started to throb horrifically, so she unleashed another gob of bloody spit and rushed out of her office, around the corner and towards the shared kitchen space. In the kitchen was a junior reporter. He was an eager to please kid, a rookie from the country whose name was Harry, or Henry, or Henry. Judith hated all reporters for being pseudo-intellectual type A personality brats who couldn't take criticism and didn't know how to hold a conversation, and she hated them more when they were young and had weird names. She squinted at the kid, who was wearing a sleek blue business shirt and a red tie, as he dunked his tea bag and worked up the confidence to greet her. Was it Henry? She couldn't remember. Tea, eh? Henry boomed. Judith shuddered. Henry was taken aback. Bit of a pick-me-up in the afternoon, he continued, valiantly trying to force cheeriness into his voice. He couldn't quite bring himself to look Judith in the face. Combat the old 330-itis? Judith stared at him with a combination of incredulity and necessity. Her mouth had filled with blood and spit. Her silence made Henry intensely uncomfortable, and he tried to fill it. Slow day, he began, but the disgust on her face stopped him in his tracks. Did you see... He tried again, but he thought better of it. Reminds me of when I was a kid, he tried for the third time. This time he was using the personal approach. There was one summer afternoon out on the property because we lived in the country, and Dad decided he was going to build a raft as a bit of a laugh. So he went down to the dam at the back of the property and got a bunch of logs that were lying around and he had some old rope from the garage, and he tied them all together and floated out into the middle of the dam on the raft. But then he thought he saw a snake and he tried to paddle back to the bank, but he was trying to paddle so hard he fell off. And when he got back to the house, mum reckoned he looked like a goose. So she made him a cup of tea and he was right as rain. Judith stared at him with rage. Would have been about 3.30, he stammered. Judith lurched at the sink and launched an enormous mouthful of spit and blood at the drain. Some of it splashed up around the sides and flecked the printed sign telling people to wash their cups. She reached blindly for a mug and rinsed her burning mouth. Henry, she gasped. Henry shuddered. His knees weakened. He breathed a barely audible yes. And as Judith wheeled around, a thick rope of gelatinous pink drool cascading from her slack lower jaw, he squeaked, oh my goodness, and fumbled for something to lean on. He didn't find it. His legs buckled and he lurched forward. As he was about to hit the floor, his flailing hands found the edge of the kitchen counter and he grasped desperately at it until he was able to draw himself up to a standing position again. As he did, there was a hideous choking cough. It was Judith. She was laughing at him. She spat again and kicked savagely at his legs. He hit the deck. This time he didn't try to get back up. He stared fearfully up at her. Henry, you idiot! She snarled horribly. You're fired. Fuck off. She began to laugh again. It was a fantastic feeling. She returned to her office to collect her purse and call a cab to take her home. The euphoria of firing Henry was, of course, inherently unsustainable when there was only one Henry to fire. She needed to make hay. As she replaced her desk phone in its cradle, it rang again. It was Brent. Brent managed Five News' human resources. Bad news, Judith. Brent boomed. Peter's been pinged by the cops for manslaughter. 
Like I give a fuck about that little rat. Judith snarled and hammered the phone back down. The next morning, of course, when rage had given way to cold fury and she'd managed the pain of her dissolving guns with strong painkillers, she did give a fuck. She called Perry Algiers into her office via an email with a subject line that read, My office now, and a body that read, My office now. Hours after Judith's freezer pack mishap in Peter Quinnell Live's apartment, the shock of his face on the news overwhelmed Peter. When he saw it, he collapsed backwards catatonically and stared at the ceiling until his eyes closed themselves. He slept for a couple of hours. At 6am, he awoke from restless dreams and leapt from the couch. It was all a misunderstanding. All he had to do was lay low and wait it out until the details of the tragic accident made their way into the sunlight, and he could return to work, vindicated and with the full sympathy of the company and the viewing audience to propel him through several rounds of post-traumatic stress counselling and a book deal. And what better place to lay low than his gorgeously appointed apartment? With a new joy in his heart, he dragged his mattress into the living room and plonked down in front of the TV. He'd wait them out. He'd put on The Godfather, which he'd heard was good. Five minutes later, the anxiety of not knowing what people were saying about him proved too much, and he switched the TV back over to the news. There was a story about a new type of blood test, then one about a crime in a rural town, then something about politics. Peter began to fret. He got a bag of corn chips from the cupboard and sat hunched on the coffee table eating them. A story about Centrelink cheats. He stood up and began to pace. At long last, his press shot flashed up on the screen. He leapt excitedly back onto the couch. The story hadn't progressed since the night before. He sank gloomily into the gap between two of the cushions. For the next few hours, he repeated the same pattern, waiting with breathless anxiety for the other news stories in rotation to give way to an update on the story about him, a brief moment of excitement, then dread and horror as the piece confirmed that he hadn't yet been vindicated. Around lunchtime, he made a ham sandwich and realised he was starving. He made and ate a second ham sandwich, then did four push-ups and half a dozen star jumps. He'd need to keep his body strong while he was in hiding. At 3pm, there was a loud and incredibly violent knocking at the door. Peter crept, trembling to the peephole. It was a pair of uniformed New South Wales police. Peter felt his heart constrict. His knees weakened. He sagged to the floor. They knocked again and he whimpered. He dragged himself around the corner into his bedroom and crawled under the bed. He waited for the crash as they knocked his front door off its hinges, but it never came. After a while, the low light and lack of airflow got the better of him and he put his head down and slept. At 3am, he lurched awake, cracking his head as he tried to sit up. He shuffled out and rose to his feet. A new clarity had descended as he slept. Yes, he must lay low. But it was crazy to think that he could do that in his own home and with his face on the news. He had to take evasive action. And if he wanted to evade capture, what he had to do was run. For centuries, people had run to evade capture. Books were full of plucky heroes whom, the finger of an unjust inquisition pointed at them, disappeared into the landscape until such time as they could control the narrative and assert their innocence. He grabbed his half-packed bags and stumbled a few steps, allowing his sluggish pulse to carry oxygenated blood into his gently muscled legs, then entered the walk-in wardrobe that adjoined the bedroom. The wood was a muted mushroom. The lights were set permanently at a sensually dim level that cast impressive shadows from the weakest chins. He grabbed a tasteful footstool and, ascending it, grabbed an armful of expensive masculine leather valises. He filled one with shirts, one with socks, one with underpants and one with slacks. In the last one, he placed his computer, passport, wallet and mobile phone. He bundled them under one arm and left the apartment. He rode the elevator down to the basement where his car was parked. 
An elderly utility worker stood by a chute, heaving big drums of black sludge over the lip and in. Peter flinched as he noticed the utility worker. The valises fell from his arms, hitting the smooth concrete with a breathy, shapeless thud. A sob escaped from his throat as he lowered himself to his haunches and began gathering them up again. The old man leant against a bin and studied Peter with an attitude of unwilling recognition. Who are you? He demanded eventually. The answer came to Peter with a euphoric and unexpected ease. A builder, he told the man. He rejoiced internally. Normally his instinct would have been to answer, Peter Quinnell Live, the news anchor. Yet when his powers of deceit were needed most, they had effortlessly risen to the task. He swelled, his brain flooded with giddy jubilation. Here before him was a rube, a mark, a hapless dunce, the unwitting partner in a dance to which he didn't know the steps. A builder, Peter repeated, and I'm off on a job, a build site, you see. He extended his arms, palms upward, and gestured each in a horseshoe pattern, right clockwise, left anti-clockwise. Again, he rejoiced. Were those the gestures of a builder? Perhaps. Mm, the old man said, squinting suspiciously. A builder. Oh yes, Peter elaborated. With hammer and saw, I've had a hand in more of this city's buildings than I'd care to count. It's as much a passion for me as it is a profession, or you won't catch me turning my nose up at a paycheck. The old man grunted and jutted his chin at the valises and asked, Those your tools? Peter chuckled warmly. Of course, he said. What's a working man without his tools? From his pocket, the old man drew a 20-cent coin, squinted one eye slightly and hurled it at the valise that held Peter's silk pyjamas. The coin hit it and bounced high into the air. Seems mighty soft, the old man spoke accusingly. Peter picked up the valises and ran. The old man cackled with intense and filthy glee as Peter reached into his pocket for the key to unlock the masculine black BMW he'd been coerced into buying. He lost his grip on the valises and they tumbled to the floor of the parking lot again. He wailed in frustration and the horrible old man laughed again. He called, You on the run, mate? After Peter. And Peter wailed again, and again the old man laughed. At last the boot of the car was opened, and with ragged breaths Peter stuffed into it the five valises before hurling himself into the driver's seat. He was frantic. He hyperventilated. He felt around in the glove box and on the floor of the passenger seat for a leftover paper bag to calm his hands, and when he couldn't find one, he buried his face in the breast of his navy blue blazer. His breathing slowed and his sobbing eased. When he withdrew his face, the old man was at the window, grinning horribly and waving a mobile phone. I'm gonna call the cops on ya! He crowed triumphantly. They're gonna get ya! Peter threw the car into reverse and with a horrifying screech, peeled it out in a semicircle arc. He floored and sped out of the parking garage. He could feel vomit pushing at the base of his esophagus and he willed himself to not be sick. Salt water pooled in his mouth. His hands tingled. He flushed hot. His chest ached with exertion and he wondered if he'd have a heart attack. He imagined going into cardiac arrest, his spasming foot depressing the accelerator as his hands slipped from the wheel and he crossed the centre double white lines into the path of an oncoming truck. The truck would roll over the hood of his car and jackknife, its trailer toppling across the roadway and its cabin ploughing into a shop front where it'd take out the immigrant worker pulling his seventh overnight shift in seven days. The worker would die of his injuries in hospital while police and fire crews worked all day and into the evening to clean up the mess, and Peter's nostrils flared with the indignity of his legacy being a headache for commuters. Irritation welled in his chest, and as it did, he felt his nausea recede. He leant forward in his chair and looked up at the night sky, and the feeling receded again. He gripped the wheel tightly and felt control return. He focused on the tasks of driving. He looked at the stars, twinkling faintly against the lightning blue of pre-dawn. 
In the middle of the night, the stars were everywhere, nestled between the constellations that burned in the foreground of the night sky, some bold and bright, others light years beyond, dim and indistinct. They crowded every corner of the sky, busy and gregarious, until light refracting into the atmosphere began to drown them out. With every minute that passed, thousands of stars disappeared until all that was visible was Venus. And then that was gone too. The Horse and the Rider is an original novel-length audio story written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. Please subscribe if you enjoyed it and follow my substack, infinitegossip.substack.com.